studying the Olivet Discourse and pretty much the last few times that I've taught it's just been basically Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. You know, so we're not finished with that yet. But uh, there's kind of a, a little bit of a sameness to the theme. And so I think it's probably providential. I was away, and Larry could give you something to just give you a little break from all that sameness. And uh, so we're thankful for the lesson he brought last week. But as for today, Jesus is coming back. All right. <laughs> now here's the here's the uh, here's the danger in the sameness of the theme, especially this morning because. We're coming to the parable of the talents, and we've all heard it. We all know what it says. It's probably the most preached, the most taught part of all of the Olivet Discourse. It's not unfamiliar territory. So our temptation is to kind of just, oh yeah, I know this. Kind of, you know, I'm hearing it, but I've heard this before. Uh, Got a lot of things going on, got the holiday coming up, got a lot of things to do, and even in teaching it, from my perspective, I have to guard against that because I feel like you all are good Bible students, you already know this information. So I want to just stop for a minute and remind myself, remind you, that there is extremely important applications here we need to not miss this morning because it's the lesson this morning is yes it's about Jesus coming back but it's it's about more than that it goes deeper than that and it it affects how we live our life today and this is a reminder of what our life in Christ should be in this parable. So, with that said, let's all be reminded that remember, God put this in the scripture here at this juncture for a reason. And uh, we must not let the familiarity of the parable take away from the opportunity to meditate on the application. We're at uh, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Verse 14 begins, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted them, entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. The first thing I want to call your attention to Before we go any further, it's right here. For it is just like. Now go back to the parable of the ten virgins. In chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable, or literally be like, the ten virgins who were waiting on the bridegroom. So again, it's a parable of the same type, 
as the parable of the ten virgins. And the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents are just an additional parable that really fits into that whole group of seven parables that we studied way back when we studied Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven. That's an important concept, and we'll get back to that in a few moments. But it is a parable, and we must treat it as a parable, and not get off into trying to interpret every detail. Remember, we'll make the parable walk on all fours. The kingdom of heaven will be like the three slaves described in this parable. Each slave was entrusted with managing a certain portion of his master's financial assets. I know. I've heard it many, many times. When you come to the word talents, people look at it and talk about your abilities. Now, ultimately, applicationally, that's included. But we have to understand here that the word talent was a measure of weight in that day. A talent was a measure of weight that equaled about 75 pounds in English measure. At the current price, by the way, the, uh, of the price of silver at the moment, that's what I'm trying to say, a single talent would be worth about $28,000, dollars $28 to $30,000. That's a lot of ounces, a lot of troy ounces of silver. Now, the parable doesn't say it's silver. The parable just says a talent. It could have been gold. So if it's gold, just multiply the 28000 by 10 for each talent. 280000 times the gold, they got 10 talents, so 10 times 10. We're up in the millions in value. So each slave was entrusted with managing a certain portion of his master's financial assets. Now, the parable is about much more than being a good steward of your finances. That's included. And the comparison here is one thing, the application, as we're going to see, is going to expand that. So back to verse 16. Immediately one, immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. So he ended up with ten. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more, so he ended up with four. But the one who received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Well, he didn't end up with any more than what he started with, obviously. <coughs> now, after a long time, verse 19, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. In other words, he's gone for a long time. He comes back. He has entrusted these men with managing his assets. So he wants to know, you know, what have you done with my asset? What have you accomplished? What have you uh, done to a profit? And so forth. Now, we want to compare this parable with Matthew 24, 45 to 51.
This is back before chapter 25. Chapter 24. Remember the, the story. Let's go back and I'll read it to you quickly. <clears throat> Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if the evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the hypocrites in the place there in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So 24, 45 to 51 is very, very similar to the parable of the talents. Not the same, but the situation is the same. Both the Matthew 24 section I just read and the parable of the talents both feature the imminent return of the master who entrusts his possessions, possessions to slaves. Now the word imminent means at any moment. In other words, the master could have been gone for one day, ten days, a hundred days, ten years. He didn't say when he was coming back. But entrusting his assets to those who would manage them implied, I'm coming back. He just didn't tell them when. That's exactly what Jesus has done in regard to us in this dispensation. Remember, the kingdom of heaven. Again, looking at chapter 25 at verse uh, 14. But it is just like the man, just like the man who goes on a journey. That is, the kingdom of heaven is just like this. And the kingdom of heaven, as we're going to see more uh, specifically in a moment, stretches from the first to the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes us. So, Jesus has died on the cross. He's purchased us. He has risen. Uh, from the dead, he has ascended back to the Father, and he, he told his disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. So we're waiting. We don't know when. Just like the slaves in the parable don't know when, the master's coming back. But he's coming back. It's imminent. It'll be at any moment. Therefore, both accounts, the Matthew 24 account I just read, and the parable of the talents refer to the imminent return of Christ or the rapture of the church. <clears throat> Any questions so far, comments? Okay. All right, let's move on to verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents. Remember, let's go back and just remind ourselves. Uh, go wrong way, sorry. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So, verse 20, Then the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I gave five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Slave reads servants in some translations. Well done, good and faithful slave. You have, uh, you were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The master's happy. The master's joyful. The master's pleased with him. Verse 21. 
Verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The exact same thing he said to the first slave. That's important. It wasn't the amount. Five talents gained versus two talents gained. But it was the amount in, in contrast or comparison to how much he entrusted them with. The reward was the same. So each of the two faithful slaves increased his entrusted assets by 100%. That's how we have to look at this. Each of the two faithful slaves received the same reward. Now, it's not really covered other than just mention of reward here, but we all are well aware of the what the Bible calls the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ. Uh, when the Lord comes back, His church, the rapture, uh, those believers, uh, church-age saints, are going to be rewarded for their service. And there's the temptation, humanly speaking, for us to think, well, I'm probably not going to get much of reward in heaven because, you know, I just, I just didn't have a lot of ability. I didn't have uh, the gifts other people have. Uh, I didn't have the opportunities. Or I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just, in, I'm just a believer. I'm just insignificant. I'm just happy to, you know, get into heaven and, and not, you know, that'll be enough for me. Okay? We all kind of put ourselves on that plane. But the most insignificant of believers from a human perspective, as far as ability, as far as gifts, as far as what they can do, or what they have to work with, the most insignificant can gain the most significant reward. Isn't that what it's telling? I don't know about you, I think we all, we all probably, I do this, we all probably think, well, I wish I could do more, I wish I could accomplish this, I wish I could have been successful uh, in this way, and that's far, far too, um, that, that thinking is far, far uh, too influenced by human perspective. And, and our own inability to really calculate what it's going to be like eternally as far as rewards are concerned. Let's continue on. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you, see, you have what is yours, but, master, but the master answered, and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. 
then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. He said, you wicked and lazy slave. That money. The slave that hid the master's talent excused his choice due to what? Fear. Fear. That, that was his excuse. Was he really afraid of the master? Anybody, what do you think? Yeah. Or was it just an excuse? He said, you know, you gather where you don't plant, you know. You know, you expect things from other people. Well, of course he did, because he, he gave them assets to manage. Of course he expected things to be accomplished by somebody else. In his absence. <coughs> True statement. If he was really afraid that he might lose the one, he should have also been afraid that he might not gain two. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe there was some fear in it. But Jesus calls him wicked and lazy. The master described him as a wicked and lazy slave. Now here's why. Hiding the talent required no effort. No managerial effort. He didn't have to use the talent to buy low and sell high to increase his master's assets. Or invest here and get the dividend. He didn't have to do a thing except dig a hole. Just dig a hole, put it in the hole, cover it up, and do whatever in the world he wanted to do without any constraints of his time, energy, or effort. Who does that sound like? Okay, which one of you is going to be brave enough to answer that question? What does that sound like? <laughs> it sounds like us, does it not? I mean, at some point, we all do that. I mean, it's just, we're all selfish in nature, and we, we want to have our comfort, we want to have our enjoyment, we want to have our everything we want. Rather than being focused on the master's business, right? Well, at least you didn't start pointing at one another, okay? <laughs> hiding the talent not only was required no effort, but more importantly, hiding the talent left no record of ownership. Why is that important? He called it not only lazy, but wicked. What happens if he buries the talent? There's nobody else in the world knows anything about the talent. His master doesn't never come back. Or he receives word the master's lost his life somehow. 
doesn't have to worry about who, who gets the talent, does he? There's no record of it. Probably just goes and digs it up, puts it in his pocket, so to speak. So he had some wicked motives. If his master had not returned, the slave could have kept the family. I suppose he probably would have had to expunge any record that he knew about. It, was, it wasn't what put in, it wasn't put in a third party's trust, recorded or anything. Therefore, verse 28, the master speaking, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who had ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave in the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we find out in the parable, we already knew he was lazy and wicked, so we understand that this. He's, he's not here picturing a believer. He's picturing an unbeliever. You see, even those people that do not know Jesus Christ have been given opportunities to come to Christ. Even people that claim they're an atheist have made that choice. not to believe. Every unbeliever has made a conscious choice to turn away from what truth they have. But God has given every individual that ever lived the opportunity of eternal life and eternal blessing. And even in this life, the opportunity to have a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. The one who can sustain us and encourage us and bless us even in this time. Remember, parable of the talent stretches to the beginning, the first coming, to the end, the second coming of Christ. And it's describing people within the kingdom of God who are both true believers and those who whether they espouse Christianity on the surface or not, are not true believers. So two slaves were faithful as demonstrated by their works. And one was wicked as demonstrated by his absence of works. This is not teaching works salvation. It's teaching the fact that everybody has opportunity some take advantage of that opportunity, some do not. Yes. Would, could you use the word obedience instead of works or synonymous with that, do you think? I mean, it, isn't, isn't that what this parable is calling us to, is obedience? That would be appropriate language, probably better language than what I use. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I look back at Fort, uh, 15 and it... Uh, says each was given one to his own ability and then the master left he just went on a journey didn't say you know what to do with it I don't know if it was just an expectation of what they were supposed to do with it I, I guess so so I mean we're called to 
there's an expectation in our lives of obedience. I mean, is that is that the, yeah. what okay. you're supposed to? Obviously, if it's easy to read the whole parable, there was that expectation. Yeah, yeah. It just didn't elucidate it. Yeah, it, it, so many it, words at the beginning. But, sure. Uh, and and that's exactly our situation. Uh, only the only reason I chose the demonstration of works here is because some people, you, like you, you can set it your way, lack of obedience. They did, they didn't. I was just trying to illustrate works versus faith. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I mean that. But it's it, not our. It's not our works <laughs> that, our, that we choose to do of our own. I want to do this. It's what he's given to us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There might be a little more additional nuance to that because the, one could imply that if he had invested and lost it, that it might have the same outcome. But I would argue that. Uh, he said he was fearful, but clearly he was not fearful because in this case, the first you invested, you have risk and reward. But he took risk that had no possible outcome of reward. As a matter of fact, you know, he could have buried it and someone else could have found it. And he would have lost everything. So, I mean, he took a lot of risk with, with no outcome of reward. And so I think if, if he had Invested, even if he lost it through investment, I don't think he would have been reprimanded as bad because at least he made the effort to 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 obey. That makes sense. Uh, remember the, the parable. Don't want to drill down too far on the particulars. The contrast is he wasn't willing. <coughs> he wasn't willing to put the money at risk to gain. And be responsible and be obedient. Uh, what was his motivation? Laziness and wickedness. So the master said his, his claim of fear was kind of bogus. The master said you could have at least put it in the bank. So he didn't even do the very least thing he could have to get any return on the. At the very least, he could have put it in the bank. Whatever that was in those days, I'm not real sure uh, how that worked back then, but. Uh, he could have entrusted it to someone or some group of people that would have paid interest at the very least. Now, that's pretty low risk. That's pretty much no risk. But even banks fail, people fail. So there's, there's a risk in everything in life. Uh, so it, it wasn't it wasn't fear so much. It was the wicked part that I think he had full control of it. And uh, hopefully, in his thinking, probably. Eventually, possession of it. I think it showed his heart toward the master too. In his term, I knew you to be a hard man. I mean, that's not a compliment. <laughs> and and so he really had no respect for the master in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you know, he, he's just like all, all other human beings. If you think you're going to suffer something or other, you blame somebody else. You know, it was, it was like, well, it's your fault. You know, if you had, if you weren't this way, I wouldn't have done this type of thing. Yeah. So. I had a question, but I know Diane raised her hand while we saw the fur her first. Oh, that's okay. I was just thinking if he was really fearful, why would he bury it and not have any concern that somebody would find it and steal it? It was covered with this. Well, you know, that, was, that actually was taking some risk, too, but I'm, I'm sure he probably, in his mind, that, well, I'll find a place where nobody will ever think. And, 
there, there's nothing without some risk, but it's one of the motivation of it. Probably, probably there would be less risk in putting it with a bank, obviously, according to what it says, than burying it. Here's my question. How did the how did the master in this story decide who was going to get the five talents and who was going to get the two talents? Because <laughs> <laughs> he knows his people. <laughs> this is where I get one of those profound answers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can well, we can guess that <clears throat> maybe the master is trying to be wise and not put all of his eggs in one basket, in a sense. But he's also wise to know that this guy over here has got a lot more savvy, uh, good sense, than maybe this guy. There's no real reason given, but I mean, obviously, from a human perspective, we come up with some, you know. Uh, but this is all important for us to understand as far as the details Go. But here, compare the parable of the sower and compare the parable of the wheat and tares. The kingdom of heaven is like the man who sowed, or the sower that went out and sowed, and he sowed four different soils. Only one soil was good soil. The others appeared to be, but were not in the long run. The wheat and the tares. Some was good wheat, some was false. So the kingdom of heaven, between the first and second coming, contains truly born-again believers and a lot of other people that profess Christianity in a superficial way. You know, there's a lot, I mean, I, we all know, there's a lot of people get up and go to church on Sunday morning and, and they don't know the Lord. They're going there for, I just, yeah, had, a, I just had a lady this week tell me that uh, her husband, years ago, she, she became a believer, he did not, but her husband was willing to go to church because he thought it was good for his business. You know, I mean, just, that, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And so, what we're reading here, this parable of the talents is demonstrating the exact same thing. Two, the faithful slaves had works that proved their belief, obedience that proved their their fidelity to the master. One, whose lack of obedience demonstrated his lack of faithfulness to his master. And the last one, the third one, is cast into the place of outer darkness. It's not teaching you're saved by works, you have no works, you go to, to, to hell. It's just simply saying works is going to show whether or not you have now again, we, we've got to be careful because we look at works in quantity. The man who had five and gained five had a lot of works in quantity. The man who had two and gained two, it's the same reward and he had less works in quantity. Okay. In this parable, there were both false professors and true believers. Or in, in all these parables. Okay. Now let's go back to this chart, and I this chart's really busy, so let me just again remind you: we have the ascension of Christ, 
the establishment of the church, his departure. So we got his first coming, the end of that, then, then all the way through the church age, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, both halves coming down to when Christ comes back, the second coming, the kingdom of heaven encompasses that whole expansive time. We know this specifically from the parables of Matthew 13. All the way to the last one, which is the judgment okay, of unbelievers. The same we're going to find here, because next week we're going to go to the judgment of unbelievers again. So we live here somewhere. Hopefully it's Jesus Christ. So we live here somewhere. So this applies to us. There are those who interpret the parable of the talents solely in terms of believers during the tribulation period over here. But if you connect Matthew 13 parables, Matthew 24, 25 parables, the whole concept of the kingdom of heaven, we realize it covers the whole of this period, so we know that the parable of the talents applies to us. Not just to, but it'll also apply to believers during the tribulation, those who come to Christ after the rapture. But it also encompasses us. So, the parable's singular contrast. Lots of moving parts to the description here. But the singular contrast Remember, a parable means to lie two truths, lay two things down side by side and compare. Two things. But one comparison. So the parable's singular contrast. True believers will be rewarded by God in the age to come based on their faithful service. Not how much, not quantity, but their motives, as well as their accomplishments. Those who lack saving faith, demonstrated by their absence of faithful service, will be judged. As the man in the parable cut to pieces and sent to a place of outer darkness. our daily life. It should affect our daily life, and we've seen that all the way through. But in particular to this parable, what's the application? If we don't get to the application, we've just got a lot of facts in our head. Right? Life is a stewardship for which we are responsible. That's the point. Our stewardship is when like the slave, you're given something to manage for somebody else. You're a steward. Everything that we have, possess, every opportunity, every ability, every gift, every resource, pretty much covers it, doesn't it? All of our resources, all of our opportunities, 
all of our abilities, all of our gifts. Where do they come from, God? And our reward's going to be based on how we manage those resources, opportunities, abilities, and gifts. I like what Paul J. Meyer in his book Unlocking Your Legacy says, and this is all his as a quote. He says this, when it is all said and done, each of us will leave only four things behind. Memory, thoughts others have of us, souvenirs, proof of our existence, trophies, records of our achievements, and legacies. Everything you are and possess today. I would choose a little different wording, but this is a quote, but he makes a very important point. And he follows it up by saying, what has impacted me the most has been what my parents left me through their legacy, be it social, physical, mental, spiritual, financial, or emotional. But let's talk about this for a minute. So many people, even God's people, live to collect souvenirs. Okay, I'm not against owning things. I'm a capitalist, okay? I think that's biblical. But uh, we must not put too much emphasis on what we own and control. It's like the story of John D. Rockefeller, I think it was, when the, he died, someone rushed up and asked, some reporter rushed up and asked somebody who, the family or whatever, how much did he leave? And the response was, he left it all. <laughs> Trophies, that's records of our achievements. For some who have great resources, it might be what they did in the area of, you know, starting foundations or giving to charity or being a philanthropist. They, that, that becomes their focus because they got all the souvenirs in the world they could have. Well, what happens to these things? Just don't, just don't vanish away. Unless they're used to produce a legacy. But this legacy that we're talking about today is not a personal legacy. It's Christ's legacy. You see, when God gives us a resource, we should use it for his glory. When he gives us an opportunity, we should use it for his glory. When he gives us a gift or ability, we should use them for... His glory. Everything we do, everything we control, everything we have, everything we manage, everything we possess, every decision we make, is about Him. Because that's where all those things came from. We're just managers. That's all. Just managers. You know, go back to Larry's question. Why does God give some people a lot of resources, a lot of opportunities, a lot of gifts, and somebody else maybe not as much? I don't know. That's God's business. But he gave everybody, everybody the same potential for reward. Same. So all the 
ultimately, the only thing that really matters is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I really, I really wanted to expand that statement, but I didn't. But I wanted to just get that point. But let me expand on it, at least verbally. Only, the only thing that really matters is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just so I can walk into heaven and not go to hell. Now, that's important. Oh, Brad, that's probably the most important. But it's also that personal relationship with Jesus Christ means we understand he's the master. And we're the slave. And what we have is not our own. We can't live life like that apart from a close personal relationship to Jesus Christ. To think in terms of everything I do and say is reflection on him. That's what's important about the parable of talents. We come away with that. That's that is a comprehensive, all-encompassing, extremely important and difficult obligation that we have had placed upon us. We tend to break things apart, but we think, okay, I do this for God, but I do this for I mean, my family, and maybe some of this for me, and it, it's, it's, it's not the way it is. You ever see, you ever see someone encourage making a list of priorities, and you begin with God? That's good. And then maybe they put family, maybe, uh, Maybe church falls in here. Maybe their career. And I'll suggest to you that it's a totally wrong concept. It's all wrong. God at the center. Family, church, self, career, all this. Goes back to Christ at the center of it all. Not dividing it up. I'm sorry, that just just extra popped into my mind, right? I put you in my picture on there and said that scribbled it. <laughs> I think we get the point. <laughs> All right, anybody else want to? You, you probably have some really uh, wise observations or maybe something. That, uh, yeah. You know, when I think about this, I just think everybody in this room has a parent or a grandparent or somebody that they know who was pretty humble in their life. By that I mean, I, I think of my, my grandmother who had maybe a fifth or sixth grade education, got married, her husband died when she was young, leaving two children, and served her entire life, you know, working uh, menial jobs, housekeepers, attendants, and so forth. 
And um, she made a comment one time. She was so toward the end of her life. She says, my whole life is meaningless. And I thought to myself, Grandma, you raised two kids by yourself. You got them both through college. You took them to church in Sunday school every Sunday, read them devotions. They turned out to be strong Christian believers, raised their family that way. The legacy you left with that one talent was more than most people would do with many talents. So true. And you bring up something here that probably should have put into this discussion. It's not only what we do at the moment, but what we affect generationally be part of our world. What do you think is the significance of the one talent being given to the man who had five already? This is where I have another one of those profound answers. At that point, he had 10. Right? Right. So now he has 11. Yeah. Well, he says, he tells us the application there's sort of it, you know, the one who has will be given, and the one who you know, doesn't do anything, it'll be taken away. I think that's just kind of a an illustration of the fact that some people had the opportunity, squandered it, lost it. I don't know what it means entirely by given to the other man. I I don't think it is crucial to the singular contrast the parable's time to make, but I will admit there's some mystery in my mind there. Because he'd already received the same reward as the other guy. They'd already received the same reward. Yeah. And then he got an extra reward. reward at the end. So Yeah, it doesn't increase his reward. That's a good point. And it still all belongs to the master. And the ma and he was the, the good steward. And it still belongs to the master, whether it you know, is given to him for his investment or not. So for his care. Yeah, in uh, his care. That's really, that makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's not that the, the slave who had 10 is getting any more reward, he has to get some more responsibility because somebody needs to manage that. Yeah. That makes really good sense. I don't know if that means anything necessarily to our yeah. application out of parable. I think there's things about what happens in heaven and God's rewards and all this that we don't fully, you know, have uh, that information. Very good. Excellent observation. Somebody every week that never fails, somebody every, every week asks me questions I don't anticipate. So that tells me you're really good students. And uh, maybe I'm not quite as thorough a teacher as I can. Anybody else want to inject the word? We've got a few more minutes. Um, just trying to kind of, I mean, I think, think this kind of ties in overall with some of the concepts that you shared this morning, but, you know, as, as we're going through this, I mean, I'm thinking about kids, you know, in, in their lives, and, um, 
you know, I, I heard one time, and I, and I like the concept. I don't know. It's not like it comes out of the Bible, but, you know, if we live our lives, as you described this morning, under God's headship and authority, and uh, we follow his principles and practice his ways, we're obedient, we're living obedient lives, it's like that umbrella of God covers us. You know, I mean, it's his promises, his blessing, his protection, uh, his guidance, his insight. But you know, when we move out from underneath that, even as believers, I think, then, you know, we kind of sacrifice uh, that covering, if you will, of God. Um, and anyway, I thought that, that kind of tied in with yeah, with your lesson this morning. Even, even true believers who are going to be rewarded may not necessarily get all the rewards that they could have gotten. No, yeah. But I'm talking about, and that's that's at the judgment seat. But I'm talking about today, yeah. you know, as we live our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um, we're going to reap what we sow. I mean, yeah. That's, that's a promise too. Yeah. Very true. Well, I think we've all got to think and be on. I already know this parable at this point. All these good. Uh, Observations and comments. So that, that was what I wanted to, to get to. And I think you, you've gotten there and got far beyond. Maybe you were already there. We, we always fall a little short when we stop too soon looking at something in the scripture and meditating on it, thinking it, thinking 